Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahat Ali. And Wash. What a week we've had already. My God. But um, I think that it is important to do what mainstream media seems to not be doing, which is really, truly unpacking the Michigan primary results, which had over 100,000 people cast ballots as uncommitted mm. in the Michigan primary. There was a campaign organized to send a signal and a message to the Biden campaign that you can't afford to ignore the Muslim community, the Arab community in Michigan, because it can cost you the election. Now, I'll say this before you jump in. Nina Turner mm. was on CNN. Saw that. With Anderson Cooper and others. And they're talking about this in real time as the numbers are rolling in. And Nina Turner brings up the very issue that is at the heart of this uncommitted protest uh, vote, which is Gaza. Mm. And the war that is ravaging um, this area, the Palestinian people, over 30,000 are dead, half of which are children. This is the reason why the Muslim community in Michigan said, you know what? It's time you start paying attention to us. When she brought that up, Anderson Cooper was like, um, we need to be talking about politics. This isn't, you know, we don't need this, a lesson. We don't need a lesson. He said, clearly you fucking do. It, so watch, take it away. I have things to say. So first and foremost about that Anderson Cooper clip, can we imagine for a second that if any of that, any of those panelists were to spend, I don't know, like 90 seconds giving context as to why Israelis are in pain as a result of the October 7th uh, Hamas massacre, right? It's giving that context, would Anderson Cooper ever interrupt them, be condescending, and say, we don't need a lesson about what happened on October 7th? Would that have ever happened, Danielle? Nope. 
No, it would not. It never. But but when it comes to Palestinian lives and when it comes to Gaza, Anderson Cooper, who, according to one person on, on social media, they said each time they saw him, he came wearing his IDF shirt, right? Uh, for some reason, Nina Turner giving context as to this very deliberate strategy that not just Muslims and Arabs, but a lot, you know, Andy Levin, uh, remember that elected official in Michigan? He's also one of those individuals who led this effort to vote uncommitted. And there are others, by the way, who did abandon Biden. This wasn't abandoned Biden. This was uncommitted, a strategy by many Democratic voters in Michigan and some of these swing states to try to pressure the Biden administration to urge Netanyahu and use our levers, because, folks, we have a lot of levers uh, 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 against Israel to move for a ceasefire. Uh, Biden administration bypassed Congress twice to provide us uh, weapons. Uh, United States is the only country <laughs> in the UN that votes against the ceasefire, right? And we've given billions of dollars. And Joe Biden repeatedly says that he's a Zionist, repeats the talking points from the 60s and 70s, and unintentionally or, or perhaps intentionally has promoted also some Israeli Hasbara, right? His trademark empathy has been missing for many Muslims and Arabs and Democratic mm -hmm. voters. Mm -hmm. So that was the strategy, folks, behind it. Some of these people might vote for Biden in the election, but for the primaries to pressure the Democratic establishment that is out of touch with what's happening on the ground. If you don't believe me, Thomas Friedman, I can't believe I'm saying this, folks. This is how extreme the right-wing government of Israel has gone. And just to underscore the brutality of what's happened in Gaza, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times, just today, came out with an op-ed warning Biden that the anger he's seeing, not just from Arabs and Muslims, but from around the world, will hurt Biden, the Democrats, and the U.S. along with Israel. So it's not just mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. Arabs and Muslims, right? Now, as a result of this strategy, right, this is what happened. I, I, I need liberals and Biden supporters uh, to, to make up their mind. Uh, first of all, they're saying it doesn't matter. You know, Biden won Michigan by 150,000 votes. Who cares about these people? At the same time, those same people are getting very angry for this uncommitted vote. So I'm like, make up your mind. If it doesn't matter, let these people mm -hmm. vote uncommitted. Who cares? And, and if it does matter, then acknowledge it. And what we found out was as a result of the, the primary, one in eight Democrats voted uncommitted. Mm -hmm. Okay, one mm -hmm. in eight. When it comes to Arab American precincts, around three and four. So one in eight. Eh, okay, unusual. Uh, to give perspective, in 2012, 11% of Michigan Democrats uh, voted uncommitted instead of uh, Barack Obama. But three in four Democratic primary voters in an Arab American communities, that is a huge number, Danielle. And it sends a signal because there are other swing states and other primaries. And I want to give context here. 2000 election, Bush versus Gore. You and me were old enough. Bush and Republicans did outreach to Muslims. Democrats did not. That was my first election. Muslims gathered the Muslim vote. Many Muslims voted for Bush. He engaged with them. He, he, he met with them. He mentioned some of the issues that were top of mind. Um, to this day, Grover Norquist, right-wing conservative anti-tax crusader, whom, uh, worked, uh, who, who worked with Bush to do the Muslim outreach, he said that Bush would not have won without the Muslim vote, specifically in Florida. I just want everyone to know, I tried my best, folks, to warn Muslims not to vote for uh, Bush. I said, for the love of God, vote for Gore. Uh, we learned our lesson. Okay, but what I'm saying is, if you discount this vote, 
if you discount this anger that we've talked about, that's not just Muslims and Arabs, but also black voters and Democrats and some Jews, do you feel comfortable, Danielle, going to 2024 in these swing states? Uh, no. And exactly what I said this week on MSNBC when I was asked, Danielle, do you think that Biden can afford to lose Michigan and still pull out uh, a win in 2024? And I said, no. And let me remind you that Hillary Clinton lost Michigan to Trump in 2016. Ask me by how many votes, Waj. By how many votes? 10,000. Not 100,000, not 20,000, 10,000. So for those people that want to sit around and say, well, Biden won it by 150,000 and 100,000 people just cast their vote as uncommitted, do you think that Biden can afford to lose Michigan and just say, yeah, we don't need to worry about it in the way that Hillary Clinton did when she didn't fucking visit? I don't think so. So my humble opinion for people that um, don't recognize what is at play here and are getting, you know, saying things like, well, then if the Muslim community isn't going to back Biden, then, you know, do they understand how bad things will get under Trump? Let me make something incredibly clear. There are no other community, communities that know how bad things can possibly be in this country other than black people and Muslims, okay? And people who intersect with both of those communities. We know exactly how bad things can get because we're always paying the price, right? So the fact that these people, and it's not just Muslims in Michigan, it is the black church that has taken out ads in the New York Times that has written several pieces in mm -hmm. the New York Times, the uh, AME Church, which boasts membership of three million black people mm. in this country, right? The pastors that represent some, you know, 50 million people like wake up. It isn't just one group. And it's the group that knows the stakes the best. And so if I'm Biden after Michigan last night, I'm thinking to myself, oh, we got to do something here and we have to do it fast. And it can't just be me talking about fucking genocide while I'm eating ice cream. Cause also Jesus fucking Christ. Terrible. And, and this is one of those situations where uh, according to the administration, they're saying, we're not worried about this. We know those people will come back, but I'm telling you folks, hundred thousand votes. You better believe there's some alarms going off. They're never going to admit it. But there's some alarms going off right now. And it's one of those situations I just want to, you know, because many of our listeners might not engage with Muslim Americans and Arab Americans. They're not stupid. They are very aware of how dangerous Trump is. But I'm in a position right now, uh, Danielle, where when you talk to someone who has lost family members in Gaza, mm -hmm. and it seems mm -hmm. like the situation will not de-escalate, and their government is funding it and arming it, and Biden's trademark empathy seems to be completely missing, and the administration itself, there's leaks that they've messed up when it comes to outreach. You tell them, hey, uh, what you consider genocide, just vote for Biden, and you better vote for Biden or else. It's not working, and people are ma making a moral vote to go uncommitted in the presidential race and vote down ballot uh, Democrat. But it's one of those situations where look at Michigan, then look at Minnesota, then look at uh, Wisconsin. Let's see. 
And it's one of those situations where I just want people to pay attention to it. Don't, don't dismiss it. And the last thing I'll say is it's also a moral issue because like you mentioned, Daniel, 30,000 people have been killed, 12,000 children. And it seems like, uh, you know, Netanyahu, according to Thomas Friedman, his post-war plans is just turn Gaza into a meat grinder and then occupy it. Um, if this war keeps going on till the summer, uh, and we're looking at the polls right now, it's it's a dangerous game that Biden is playing uh, by not using the levers. That's my take. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. And, you know, and I and I would say this before we move on to our next story is that it is an incredibly dangerous game that Netanyahu is playing for uh, on the world stage. And there is a reason why Israelis continue to protest in mass, because they believe that he is putting their country, their lives and their future at risk by his extreme actions. And that is coming out of people on the ground in Israel that are in the streets. Family members of the hostages. Protesting. Family members of the hostages leading the charge. So you don't have to take it from us, right? But you sure as hell should take it from the people that are living inside of the country under Netanyahu's thumb. Um, So uh, switching gears, I, I, I actually want to switch gears into Aaron Bushnell uh, while we're on the topic of uh, America's involvement in in this war. But it's not even a switch. It's not even a gear switch, if you think about it. It isn't. Um, and so, Waj, what, what I will say is that there have been days and there have been weeks over the last several years that require me to lay down that require me to turn off social media, 
and like literally just let go of it all because the weight of the grief and the trauma is just too much. This past weekend was one of them. Aaron Bushnell, 25 year old Air Force, um, uh, uh, active member, went before the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., with a bottle of flammable liquid, mm. had posted on social media that he can no longer be, in his words, quote, complicit in genocide, uh, put his phone down on the ground and live streamed his act of self-immolation. There is a picture of police officers mm. pulling their guns on a man who is engulfed in flames. And someone tweeted and said, I can think of no better image of where and who America is in this moment than that. What got me and what struck me was the fact that when reports were coming out about this, mm. which, by the way, is not the first or the second self-immolation to happen since the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war, there was no mention of the reason why. <laughs> why did he do that? Huh? It was, it was headline. Uh, U.S. Air Force uh, uh, officer uh, lights himself on fire in front of Israeli embassy dot 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 wash make that make sense for us i want to actually share his words this is what he said please right before he did this extreme act of self-immolation quote i am about to engage in an extreme act of protest but compared to what people have been experiencing in palestine at the hands of their colonizers it's not extreme at all this is what our ruling class has decided will be normal, free Palestine. And then as he succumbed to his horrific injuries, his last words, yelling, screaming, were free Palestine, free Palestine. As you mentioned, as he was engulfed in flames, there was one security guard who, for whatever reason, had his gun pointed at him. And the other uh, officer, a black man, said, we don't need guns, we need fire hydrants. And what has fascinated me is the double standard at play. And the hypocrisy. Like you mentioned, this is not the first act of self-immolation. Muhammad nope. Boazizi, the Tunisian merchant, if you all remember, did an act of self-immolation in Tunisia, which then lit the flame of the Arab Spring. Valorized, right? Pitied, uh, the, you know, empathized with him, right? Remember that? Even President Obama praised him. No discussion of mental health crisis. None. Uh, you know, when we see the Tibetan monks who have done the same act to protest China's brutality in Tibet. Same thing. No one sits there and says, go forth and self-immolate, but they say, oh my God, look at this extreme act of protest, self-immolation, sacrifice. Things are so bad that these people are willing to succumb to, to fire to, to bring about attention. None of that happened here. None of that is happening. No. And when I bring this up, I am, I said this at the you know, before we started recording, like just all these Islamophobes, hate mongers have come out to disparage him, demean him. There were, you know, he's literally as clear as can be for his motivations. You don't have to agree with it, 
but he's as clear as it can be. And what did people dismiss him as? Uh, you know, suicidal uh, mental health issues without engaging with the actual reason of why he did it. Why? Because it's about Palestine and what's happening in Gaza. And because they don't want to talk about that inconvenient reality, well, let's call him an anarchist. Let's call him crazy. But we won't do that with Mohammed Bouazizi in the Arab Spring, which we supported. We won't do that with the Vietnamese monk who burned himself on fire in the cover of Rage Against the Machine's you know, first album. Uh, we won't do that with Tibetan monks because that's convenient. We like that. No. We like it when they protest those things. And just to be clear, this is the third act that happened in the United States. Um, but you, we don't know the name of, won't remember the name of the woman who did it in the South um, because her name and the act was scrubbed from the internet. Uh, this isn't China. Uh, and yet somehow there is a media blackout. And this is the thing. Uh, and I have to, I have to pull it. I have to pull it. And I know that we're running short on, on our time here, but it was a post that someone did. And I said, wow, um, it is really fascinating that what the United States will do, and I, and ugh, now I can't find it, of course, but what the United States will do is if you put on fatigues to go and fight their wars against black and brown people, you're labeled a hero. If you put on fatigues and give your life to bring attention to the murders, the trauma, and the dehumanization that is happening against Palestinian people, black and brown people, then you are labeled crazy. And I thought to myself, my God, what clear truth. This is, this is America, that we can just shrug off this act, which I can't imagine his friends, I can't imagine his family, mm. I can't imagine anyone that knows him, but to shrug it off as if it doesn't matter and for the news to have taken so very long to actually read his words and share the reasoning mm. that he offered because it was all over social media. So already by not reporting on it, people are seeing exactly what you're doing. I, I just, last word to you, uh, Waj, on this, but I just, it was, it was beyond. It was, a, it was a story that really made me have to go and lay down. Yeah, the, it reveals the hypocrisy. It reveals the double standards. It reveals the 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 gulf between the the rage and anger of the majority and the apathy of what I think are uh, folks in establishment and power, and the increasing gulf uh, between this righteous rage, right, and how people choose to manifest this rage and protest. Right. Uh, you know, you have to 
politely protest, you know, then even polite protest is getting people fired, Daniel, right? And so it's one of those situations where, thankfully, uh, due to his own words and due to social media, we know why he did it. You don't have to praise it. You don't have to support it. You don't have to thank. I hope to God people don't repeat it. But at the very least, at least honor his own words and his own choices. That's what we can give to Aaron Bushnell, right? Why did he do what he did? Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully in this podcast, uh, we can share the words that he, he decided to say before he self-immolated. And he did it as an act of extreme protest uh, to what he considers to be injustice in Palestine. And his last words, again, as he was screaming, were free Palestine. Mm. And, I, and I will just say that um, the, the quote, the tweet that I had mentioned was written by Youssef uh, Mounier, um, who said, if you die in uniform while killing brown people, you are made into a hero. If you die in uni- uniform protesting the killing of brown people, you are made to be mentally ill. Are these the esteemed values of Western civilization? Coming up next, our interview with investigative reporter Mosi Secret on his new podcast series, Radical. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Danielle, uh, I have like 800 kids. And when you have 800 kids, you don't have time. And you pray and you hope and you dream for just an extra hour in the day. And you think, oh, if I had an extra hour, what, do I, what, you know, what would I do? And it, it's pretty much sleep. I would just sleep. But there's a lot you can do with an hour. And since the summer, and I've shared this with our uh, listeners, I've used an hour every two weeks to do therapy. And uh, help. it's helped me refine my goals so that 
I can use whatever time I have left in a more meaningful way and be happier. Bravo to you, Waj, because I feel the same way, right? Like therapy for me has never been about, oh, well, if I can just tackle these things, then my life will be perfect or everything will be good all the time. It has been about allowing me the nimbleness and the clarity to tackle and to take on challenges that will inevitably show themselves. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com democracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash democracy. Folks, I am, um, Waj and I are very excited to welcome to Democracy-ish Mosi Secret, who is an investigative journalist um, with a new uh, eight-part, very exciting series entitled Radical, um, which follows the gripping tale of Imam Jamil Abdullah Alamin formerly H. Rap Brown, a Black Power activist and honorary officer in the Black Panther Party. M- Mosi, give us, give our listeners a democracy-ish who, you know, are, are very invested in how government works and how democracy works. And when we hear stories and read headlines of injustice, these are the, like, it gets under our skin. It isn't just a oh, you roll your eyes or, oh, you know, of course. This story, when I saw it, was like, it wasn't an of course, it was like this heated rage that just grew inside me. So give people the 50,000 foot view of Radical, of this series and why you decided to uncover this story. Yeah. So Radical um, at its heart tells the story of a shootout that happened in Atlanta, Georgia on March 16th of 2000. Um, Outside of a a neighborhood mosque, a small mosque that um, uh, was essentially operated out of an old house, kind of a repurposed house, um, two Fulton County sheriff, actually two sheriff's deputies showed up to arrest a man uh, named Imam Jamil, Imam Jamil Alamin. Um, there was some type of confrontation that ensued, and there was a shootout in which both of those deputies were wounded, and one of them was killed. Um, after a, a manhunt, um, Jamil Alamin was captured and charged with this crime and eventually convicted um, in a court um, kind of right after 9-11 when there was all of this anti-Islamic um, sentiment that was that was circulating in the United States. Um, the other piece of this is that this man, Imam Jamil Alamin, had a long history as a black revolutionary activist. Before he became Muslim, his name was H. Rep. Brown, a figure who many of your who most of your listeners, I'm sure, will know. Um, you know, one of the last leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, someone who was a headline figure, a nightly news kind of figure. And really known for his bold calls for um, uh, violent uh, or armed self-defense, armed self-defense against state violence. As a black nationalist leader, um, and into his his um, life as a as a Muslim imam, he um, attracted the attention of the FBI. 
uh, in particular, who um, over the course of his life surveilled and targeted him with various types of investigations and schemes. And so what the podcast investigates is um, Jamil Alamin's longstanding claims of innocence that he was framed by the government and also the FBI's role um, in surveilling him and, and kind of what that that led to. You know, the 50,000, I appreciate giving the 50,000 foot view. Uh, I want to take it to the ground level because we're around the same age. And I remember when this happened, I was at UC Berkeley about 20, about to turn 21, a member of the Muslim Student Association. This was right around the war on terror. And when this happened, our community was shell-shocked. And, and, and in a way, when it when the the law enforcement and power gives a certain narrative, it conflicts with what people are saying, there's also conspiracy theories, there's also doubt, you know, there's mistrust, you don't know what to believe. Some people said, listen, man, he, you know, he was militant. Other people said, no, he was framed. And so for 20 years within our communities, uh, we, 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 you know, there's always been doubt. There's always been an asterisk. Like, did he really do this? Was he really radical? What really happened? And one of the bombshells that your investigative podcast revealed which, which again, kind of for communities of color, Muslims and black folks in particular, it makes you realize, oh, wait, we weren't crazy. Uh, we weren't gaslighting ourselves. Was this use of this, like just, I, I, the, the first word that popped in my mind was insane, but I don't want to use that word, this, this informant. Tell us about this, in, just, I'm amazed. Break down the informant the FBI used to infiltrate. Yeah. Yeah, so we all know we have this kind of it's almost a part of the culture now what was accomplished under Cointel Pro, what what people were trying to do under Cointel Pro. But what was really remarkable about Well, mostly if you can is, for a second, can you can you connect the dots cuz I don't think a lot of folks, especially the the, the youth might know yeah. about yeah. Pro. So, uh Cointel Pro um uh, kind of an acronym for counterintelligence program that was run by the FBI largely to um, infiltrate and um, and break apart movements on the left, um, civil rights uh, movements, black movements, for the most part, run by J. Edgar Hoover, in which he would kind of come up with um, really illegal schemes to, to chip away at these movements. And so there were some people who were targeted um, by this program, and Atrap Brown, who becomes Imam Jamil Alamin, was one of these people. And so, you this this is something that, as a kind of a student of history, you hear about a lot. But what we get in this case is um, a really kind of detailed example about how those methods carried into the present moment, or at least the moment around the year two thousand that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, so as you mentioned, um, there was this informant who mm -hmm. the FBI was working with. They were working with this informant because over the course of, of Jamil Alamin's life, he had never really stopped being surveilled. He, he started a Muslim community in Atlanta in a historic neighborhood called the West End, and it was known for welcoming working class people, people coming home from prison from all over the country. He was also still espousing armed self-defense for these communities that had often been targeted by state violence, by racist violence. Uh, and so he was always surveilled, and there were always informants moving in and out of his mosque, his masjid. Um, and so one of the things that we found in this podcast, which is just like 
And sane is a good word for it, because one of the things that we found was that the FBI, um, the FBI got one of the members of his community who'd gone to prison for murder out of prison to return into his community and report back on what was happening. Um, and, um, you know, what's the crazy thing that happened is that this person continued to kill. Um, we documented 11 murders that happened under the FBI's watch while he was a paid informant. So he's a serial um, killer. So I'm like, I'm like, basically, he was a paid friggin' hitman for the FBI. Like, how how does how that work? He was a paid hitman, hitman, and he was working for the FBI. I don't want to put those two things together. I put it together, mostly. I put it together, not you. <laughs> um, but yes, eleven murders we were able to document, and wow. there were allegations that there were more than fifty, which would put him among the most prolific serial killers in the history of the United States. So you have to ask. What was it that he was doing that was so dangerous that would merit um, partnership with this kind of dangerous person? I, I just like the lengths that the FBI, that this country has gone to in order to quelch um, black activists black organizing, black like self-actualization mm. in this white supremacist patriarchal country just is mind-boggling. I think that the more you learn, it's like democracy where? We named the show aptly. It is democracy-ish because you're just like, how? How do you have a full-fledged program? First of all, because I'm talking about um COINTELPRO, how you have a full-fledged program that is about investigating American citizens who are doing nothing than protesting the government to be treated like full-fledged citizens. Mm. It is just, to me, the fact that we are still in this place, right? Like, I think about this now, your story coming out with the backdrop, not of 9-11, but of January 6th. Mm, right like i think about it in the way i'm just like wow january 6th might have never happened had oh i don't know any of the any of the alerts any of the interest you know uh that is in black organizing and activism had been pointed to actual white nationalists and domestic terrorists with this this series mosi like what are your hopes in terms of how this information is consumed now in the time that we are living in, where we as a country, and I think as a, as a world, are really questioning America and America's attachments to this false idea of democracy? How do you think that a story like this... Um, with a man that has been in prison for, you know, decades upon decades upon decades, which is what they do to black revolutionaries. Um, how do you think it will sit? Um, I want to answer that, but I also want to go back to this informant and just give a little bit more context because I think mm -hmm. it would be helpful. I wrote the question down so I'll remember it. Um, these murders were happening, and the reason that they were able to happen without anybody caring is that a lot of a lot of this 
information gathering, working with the informant happened during uh, the crack epidemic. And a lot mm. of the people whose lives were, lives were lost were undesirable folks, uh, people who society didn't necessarily care about, drug dealers, users, prostitutes, that type of thing. It was like Dahmer's uh, victims also. Say that? Like Dahmer's victims were young gay men. Yeah, people, no people, marginal, marginal folks. And so, so the, there's that one element of it, which I think the context is useful. The other thing is that um, Jamil Alamine, this community was situated in that environment among those types of people. And he was known in Atlanta as someone, kind of a strong man figure who came into this neighborhood, cleaned it up, set up a, a little Muslim community with 20 or 30 homes, uh, the Adan was called, call to prayer was called. It, it was, it was like a, it was a, it was a, it was a little Muslim village. That's what we say in, in the podcast. Um, but, you know, just to be fair, there are questions about how they did that. There are mm -hmm. questions about his use of violence in creating this little utopia that they created. So I just want to make sure I don't want, mm -hmm. I don't want to give that short shrift. Um, but what we hope to, to get from this, particularly this, this, the investigative things that we're revealing about this relationship between the FBI and this informant, um, which is very, very rare to prove and document because they guard those documents so closely. Um, but what we are hoping is for some accountability, the families mm -hmm. of the victims, um, the people who, the, the people who lost their lives to this man don't even know what happened. There has never been any type of um, judicial uh, recognition of the fact, public judicial recognition of the fact that this, this is what happened. There was an attempt to prosecute this person that for reasons that have not been revealed to the public, that prosecution was, was um, called off, uh, was never pursued. Uh, we deserve to know answers to that question. And so, so there's a victim impact aspect to this that we are hoping mm -hmm. takes, takes life or takes form um, so that these people um, can be, can get some answers about what the FBI was doing, uh, what the individual who ran this informant was thinking, and this person can be whatever, taken to account. Um, more broadly, what the series is looking to do is examine the ways that the government seeks to kind of monopolize violence um, and, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the consequences of that and to show audiences that this is not some artifact of, of the civil rights of the black power era, that it continued into our contemporary moment and to give them the information to reflect on that and to make meaning of it in their own lives. And to, and to, yeah, to, 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 like you said, assess the, what we have assess our democracy, mm -hmm. um, hold our democracy to account. It's only, it's only, it's only, with these stories that have been un, you know, uh, under a veil for so long that we can really know what we have to, to, yep. to judge our democracy on, um, really myth, um, does not kind of reflect what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and, and doing the work. Uh, like I said, it has embroiled our communities for two decades. And we know that anyone um, who was deemed um, a troublemaker, 
uh, oftentimes when there were black leaders, they were killed. Medgar Evers killed. Fred Hampton killed. MLK they tried killed. To kill, they, it seems like they tried to kill H. R. Brown, too. There was an assassination attempt that we, that we Assassination of H. R. Brown. And as we wrap this up, my, my quick final question to you, Mosi, is do you think the, what you've produced so far could merit the opening up of a new investigation? Mm. Yeah, well, um, almost all, I should say, his all of his appeals and habeas petitions have been exhausted. Um, there remains one kind of last-ditch effort um, for people who are advocating for his for his release um, that's being run by the prosecutor's office in Fulton County. It's called the Conviction Integrity Unit. I'm sure you've heard of these types of units where they are they are kind of reviewing old cases for to make sure that they hold water. Uh, that um, that. Uh, unit has not released its findings yet, and we know that they are still um, investigating this case. So I, that's the that's the last hope for Jamil Alamine and his family and his supporters. Thank you so much for for making the time to join Democracy Ish, but for your investigative reporting, um, folks. The 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 series uh, is radical. Um, and you should check it out where you get your podcasts. Really, All episodes really are out so you can binge. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. This was nice. 